Hi, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. My name is Andrew Rimby. My pronouns are he, him, his. I am one of the co-hosts. And with me is my fellow co-host. Hi, I'm Adam Katz. I'm also a co-host. My pronouns are he, him, his. And I'm here with... I'm Erica Grimay. I'm the media manager for the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. My pronouns are she, her, hers, or they, them, theirs. And with us today also is... Hi, I'm Mary DePippi. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I am a I am the chief contributor with the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. And now here's a message from Vital Thought. And after you will hear our episode. Welcome all to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Hi, I'm Emily Gilchrist, the founder of Vital Thought Critical Insight Courses. Vital Thought offers radical academic humanities content unpacked and contextualized for all audiences. Our two-session virtual seminars are led by PhD-trained instructors, and need-based fee waivers are available for every course. We also provide workshops and consulting for private and corporate groups. July courses are open for enrollment now at vitalthought.org. Sign up today. Uh, welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I'm Adam. I'm here with Andrew. Hi, everyone. Um, Against my protests and my better judgment, we're starting this episode at the beginning. So we'd like to introduce our guests, which are Ula and Catherine Klein. Mm -hmm. Doctor, both of them. Dr. Ula Ka Klein and Dr. Catherine Klein. Thank you. <clears throat> Welcome. Yeah. We're happy to be here. We're very excited to be here. Yeah. So, um, Ula and Catherine were at Stony Brook when I showed up. They were a few years further on. And um, even I, I think I think especially back then, because like even though even though when you get when you get to grad school, you're supposed to be a grown-up, I guess I was 24 or so. Um, you still you're I, I was in a new place, I was navigating new relationships and stuff like that. And and you guys seemed like these two people who are always like throwing entertainments for the rest of the, <laughs> for the rest of the, accurate. Um, totally accurate. the rest of the cohorts. And you were this, I don't know, you were, you were the closest thing we had to a power couple um, <laughs> besides, besides Peter and Susan who were, <laughs> who were professors. Well, I was like, I think of Vicky and Lisa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, now we have Patricia Dunn and Ken Lindblom, but I don't think they were there then. No, they were there. Oh, okay. So yeah, they, there's yeah, a few were. power couples. They were, but uh, but I didn't know them my first year. So, no. okay. so, so we're, we're going by first impression. I'm glad yeah. that you didn't say like, I got to Stony Brook and Ula and Catherine seemed like they had it all together because that would have not been accurate. <laughs> well, yeah. so can you go there I think, with us right now? Cause I'm kind no, of- No, I think that's probably that. also true, but you know, that's yeah. to well, a first year grad student. That. So why did you not have it all together if- Sure. I can get the juicy gossip. Yeah. Right? Well, dive you know, right it, into it. It's, I think in different ways, you know, we struggled with the the post classwork um, requirements of the PhD, mm. um, just because you know when you're a high achiever, like many of us who go into the PhD, you're kind of used to hitting these milestones, um, and and after your classes, and especially after your exams. 
you know, it's, it's very amorphous. And I think a lot of people struggle with that. That's when a lot of people leave the program. You've got a lot of attrition. Yeah, that's true. Um, um, I just want to interrupt. We, we have listeners who are relatives. We have listeners who are in different departments. Let's just give the architecture one time so that everybody's on the same page. Mm-hmm. At Stony Brook, not necessarily the same as at other universities, but fairly similar to a lot of other American universities. We have... <clears throat> We show up for the PhD. We have two years of coursework. Now, I didn't get a master's first, and I still only had the two years of coursework, which apparently is not necessarily standard. So that's why we're saying it. It's two years of coursework, then uh, one year of comprehensive exams, and then you start uh, submitting preliminary yeah. things for your dissertation, right? Okay, Proposal, right yeah, perspectives, and, and then... Perspectives, yeah, exactly. As you're teaching too. Right. Usually, yeah. unless you have an outside fellowship or you have a fellowship that relieves you from teaching, but. Or you're very, a baron. It's very different than the UK where you just jump right into like a dissertation research project. You don't right. have additional coursework because it's assumed that you've done a master's. Um, you've done the coursework in the master's. Yeah, so, okay. So we're back in, that was good to lay that groundwork, Adam. Thank you. So, um, so you were saying that after the two years of coursework, you started to feel. It's just hard because sense. you're not getting consistent feedback from people saying like, "Yes, yeah. you hit this mark. Yes, you hit mm. this mark." Yeah. Um, in fact, you get a lot of like pressure, I think, from from professors to be like, you know, what's what's your contribution going to be to this field that you've chosen mm. um, to uh, to participate in. And, you know, it's hard to come up with a, what's the word, original argument, right? I mean, like truly original when you're still learning the field, right? So I I kind of, I felt there was a lot of pressure there. And then my exams didn't go very well. Uh, I think there was a miscommunication between what the um, professors expected and what I understood um, as, as the goal of the exams to be. And so... You know, I think I always say, like, if it weren't for Catherine, I would have just left the program after the third year because I felt very discouraged mm. um, and kind of like adrift. You know, I, I did my exams and I was told I didn't do as well as I was expected to have done, that I barely passed, and that I needed to keep reading essentially and keep, you mm. know, learning about the field before I could even start a dissertation project. So, yeah, can that's, I? That was, you know, my Can I challenge. ask about your love story? Like, not, you don't have to get very personal, but I am curious because it's such an important facet of not only it seems your PhD work, but also just um, our lives. Your whole experience. <laughs> like, how did you first? You were both in the same cohort. Yeah, yeah, we started the same year. Wow. And we were in the same cohort. We ended up having two classes together. And um, we shared an office. We shared an office. And we both TA for Vente. We both TA for Vente. Oh. Might have just been a proximity thing. Who knows? <laughs> who knows what would have happened if it was some other lady? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You never know. Are you saying this is the marriage of convenience? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I always joke that that. Yana song, we found love in a hopeless place. That was our song. So that was that was about us because oh, whether you say Long Island or whether you say grad school, it's a hopeless place. Yeah. Well, and I think for queer women, especially at Stony Brook, I mean, I speak as a queer man, 
Uh, oh God, an, an Eastern options. Long Island. Not many options out here. Well, Eastern not, Long Island you know, there's, is not. There's not a lot of maybe maybe more so in a younger generation, but there's just not a lot of queer women. Period. You know. Mm. So let alone every time every time you're kind of winnowing yourself into a, a more and more you know narrow focus of academic work or whatever, then yeah, yeah just fewer fewer people to. Yeah, I mean, I came to to Stony Brook kind of bisexual let's say or even bi-curious right so I mean I I was hoping I would meet someone but I didn't have a specific idea of who that would be um but I just lucked out that you know I ended up with this person who was so wonderful and it's very uh, sweet perfect for me Mm -hmm. who needs to write this movie like I could already see I think we found absolutely we found not that the new like uh 50 shades of gray academia version yeah <laughs> going to the uh velvet lounge and yeah getting drunk karaoke karaoke oh. was it Thursdays karaoke Thursdays yeah yeah it was Thursdays because then we oh, had to go in and missed out on that. our sections so so the thing the thing that I want to the, the thing that I want to mention I guess is that Ula and Catherine were like four or five years ahead of me. So this had already happened by the time mm-hmm. I showed up with that that last ounce of optimism that I still had back then. Um, no, but it, and, and I just thought it was like, I remember thinking it was so adorable. I don't know anybody who hasn't had that reaction that you two shared an office and then got mm-hmm. married a few years later. Well, we weren't the only romance in the program. Um, there was Anthony Sovak and Emily Trilla who are ahead of us. And mm. then there was Nate Doherty and Kim Cox, who are oh, yeah, behind that's us. True. That's true. So yeah. we had a couple other cohort romances or cross cohort romances um, kind of swirling around us as well. And then of course there were some people who kind of dated around in the program. Sure, um, sure. And, but, but I, think, I, think it's worth, I think it's worth emphasizing that like when you go to college, obviously you want to, that's one of the places where, where people will often meet their life partner if that's what they're looking for. Um, and all the more so grad school, but like grad school, especially like for those of us who, who are, were done with college and then we decided to do it again, um, we really were trying to sort of build a life for ourselves, even if that's not exactly what we were cognizant of doing, right? I mean, like- Oh yeah. Getting an English, getting an English degree in a university at that the, at the undergraduate level is not necessarily a professional degree. It's mm-hmm. you could you could go in any any direction: teacher, lawyer, doctor, whatever, um, shopkeeper. But getting a an English degree at a university at the graduate level that's a professional degree. You're you're saying this is what I want to do for the next mm-hmm. however many decades. Um, well, used to be. Used to be. I mean, I don't think people see the PhD as a, well, it's a good conversation about the job market. It, because it is, I, don't, but... I, I think many of us now, and still in the, like in the PhD program, that whole myth has been dispelled. Yeah, yeah. So recently. I think like that's the nice <clears throat> illusory myth that has been. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think we were one of the last maybe graduating years 
2013, right? Um, one of the last few years that, you know, the market was very small, but there was still a market. Mm-hmm. And there was this idea that if you kind of hung on long enough, right, that mm-hmm. maybe you would get lucky, right? Um, and I often ended up kind of going through the back door <laughs> to use a interesting- uh, <laughs> What do you mean by that? Because I think, I think you're skipping to a much later part of the conversation where we've all yeah. had something to drink. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, we can talk about that later. Yeah, we'll um, talk about it with your work because uh, it might uh, fit in. But yeah. yeah, okay, so you're doing backdoor. some backdoor uh, routes here. From behind. But beginnings, you know, I will say like, I was definitely like Adam in the sense that I was I was 25 when I started the PhD. I had done a master's um, without which I don't think I would have mm-hmm. been accepted into a PhD program. Um, but I was 25, just turned 25 right in September um, of the first year. And I was definitely very idealistic and optimistic and kind of Pollyanna. And I had this idea that if I checked all the boxes that, you know, grad school would be fine, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely not like that because everyone in grad school is good at what they do. Everyone is super smart. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so you have to find really your niche, right? You have to find like where you yep. fit. Uh, as far as like your, you have to find what you're passionate about in your research. Yeah. And, and perseverance. To, I've learned that yeah. the people who it's persevere are the and, ones who open the doors. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and you also pass into your presentation about that at Stony Brook. About really? what? Wait, speak more to that. What presentation? Yeah, please. Give? It, was, it was about how to finish, because, you know, that was one of the things that I was, I was like, I finished my exams earlier than anyone in my year. And so I gave a presentation for like the people under me about how to do your exams and get them over with. Mm. And then it was the same with my dissertation. I was also finished soonest. And so I did the same thing where I gave another presentation about how to, how to uh, do the dissertation. And I called it my ass and chair time <laughs> <laughs> presentation. because See, Andrew, I was like, just telling you, we have a word for that. Um, yeah. I, I, the other day I used the word, the Yiddish word zitzfleisch. <laughs> which literally well, means yes, ass yes, and chair <laughs> and Andrew was like what are you talking about yeah. I celebrate Christmas no it was very much like I, I, I put the letters on the on the board like Glenn Gary Glenn Ross you know like A-I-C-T ass in chair <laughs> <laughs> Dude. Yeah. for the record though I don't celebrate Christmas but that's okay um, wait really no I don't celebrate how do Christmas I not know this anymore. about you I'm celebrating Jewish holidays now, but whatever. That's another conversation for Mazel a different tov. time. We but just Adam had Purim. Happy Adam Purim. Likes, thank, yeah. thank you. Yeah, Adam likes to put me into this Christian normative box. No, I just, just like to needle I was raised you. Catholic does not mean anything, but different conversation. Um, <laughs> well, we're pagan lesbians. Well, our, see, the this is a nice transition. We're both fam- former like, Catholics. Yeah. Yeah. So you're also a... Um, wait, what do they call them? You said former Catholic. Lapsed Catholic. Lapsed Catholic. Yeah. There you go. Lapsed Catholic. I'm like, what's the, the technical term? Um, yeah. mm-hmm. But okay, so <laughs> I actually think, Ula, and I wasn't going to bring this up until I just realized that in the file cabinet next to me, I'm pretty sure that I have your queer theory research of, es- of essays that you had printed out for your oral exams. I That's think funny. so. If I remember the story right, because I had gotten them from Dr. Munich. 
Really? Does that seem to be an accurate? I think they're mine. Oh, sorry. So I actually got yours, Catherine. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. I have a whole folder. I did did my reading. I did my queer theory reading list with her. Okay. Well, then I have, I have your folder of the queer theory (laughs) essays. That's so sweet. So thank you for that because you uh, kept me abreast. Um, But yeah. So, okay. How long then? So you said you finished your dissertation early, Catherine. Like, how early are you talking? I mean, not early. It was just sooner than anyone else. Oh, okay. Um, and at that time, they weren't, they were starting to really crack down on like more than six years of finishing. Mm. Um, you know, there was like this new thing that like you had to finish and whatever. And it was affecting all these people that had been there for 10, 12 years. Yeah, I remember that. And, and I think, I think it's, I think it's a really telling choice of language, the, the crackdown on people who had been there for this amount of time, because what, what happened and Andrew, Andrew may know of this, but he was innocent of all of this happening. It was a couple of years before his time, at least. Um, Right. Mm -hmm. We, we can discuss this. Uh, Ula and Catherine, you guys came in for 4,000, four, four years, $15,000 a year, right? (laughs) Exactly. So I came in at that at that level. Uh, that would that would have been my uh, that would have been my stipend. Four what year years. did you start? Adam? I started in August of 2010. Okay, so you're th- three years behind. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, but then um, there was a group right after the cohort that was like between us. One of the cohorts between us, they got extra money and they gave them like seventeen thousand for four years. Right. And it was like a big. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. So, so the year after I got there, um, our grad, our our direct, the director of the English department, which was Stephen Spector, um, figured. I don't know how he did this, but but they they decreased the number of people they were to accept in any given right. year, and they increased the stipend. So my stipend starting in the second year was four more years, so a total of five years, and starting in the second year, it was twenty thousand a year. Nice. And we didn't get that. No, I know. And um, one or two years after that, or one or two years after me, they were giving out six years and that didn't last very long. They had like one one or two cohorts that got six years as as a standard. And then one or, and then after that, I think they went back down to five. Yeah, five years. And so the the idea of cracking down on people who, uh, go more than six. We're talking people who, after four years, were n- were not getting paid. You guys had to had to shift for yourselves, have a have a job, yeah. teaching presumably, while also balancing your dissertations and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's not to say uh, that's to say nothing of of people who are in grad school in in the same position as you, but they also have children to take care of and things like that. Like, right, people have, you know, lives by this point. We're yeah. in our late 20s, early 30s at the, at the youngest. Um, so, so the idea of cracking down instead of just giving, giving people money and saying, here, take a load off. Or also like, if they're not being paid, then what's, what's it to you, you know? Right, exactly. I guess, I guess technically, if you're still enrolled, they're paying your tuition, right? Yeah, but that's that's on paper that's it's not yeah. i mean yeah. it's not it's not like the provost of university so I was the is first having person. to s- 
scrape together his grocery hey, coupons were... because of all these people. Yeah, wait, you were the first tuition. person for what, Catherine? So to go back to the question that you asked. Yes, please, <laughs> I please. I was the first person to, to, to defend my dissertation during my sixth year in, okay. in years and years. Right. Okay. And, then, and so you. But I was also you, the first of our cohort. You know, a lot right. of our a lot of our cohort, it was like the next year or the year after that. Yeah, I think seventh or eighth. You year. and me were both. We, we might have been the only ones that did it cohort that did it that year. But there had been like a number of years, and I almost defended in the fall, um, but ended up putting it off mostly because there wasn't any reason. Hmm. You know, the defense sooner with her still there. Yeah. Yeah. We've had a few in five years. Um, because yeah, when I came in in 2014, um, it was five years funding. Um, and these projected timelines of just, mm -hmm. you know, really trying to adhere to the goals of the third year yeah and yeah. fourth year we hadn't had to, yeah. yeah if we hadn't had to teach as much as we did sure five years absolutely right yeah so how much were you teaching them two or three a semester i guess oh wow i didn't know that and then, then also summer classes and then we also did work study of the same two or three of the same course, or did you have multiple courses in addition Sometimes to multiple, multiple sections? I, I think we both had like semesters where it was, you know, this and that, women's studies and comp. Oh my, I didn't know that they were actually like built into the stipend, there would be more than one course. So see, that's like how it shifted where, you know, no. we only taught one No, this course. is post-stipend. So, you know, when oh, that's post stipend, I'm sorry. So after yeah. that, you had to try and you know. shift for yourself so i was going to say if i had if I had mm -hmm. five or six years of funding then i absolutely would have finished in five years maybe even at right. the end of my fourth year hmm. fifth year rather yeah, yeah. well and I, I think i know one of the things that i'd heard i don't know if this is true was that there was going to be a, a built-in like opportunity for students after us to teach upper level courses during the regular semester um because like it's when we were there it was like you know, you got one year where you got to teach like the intro to poetry or intro to fiction. And after that, it was like just composition. Um, so, yeah. you know, there they was this, did that. Like, I never took advantage of it, though. Yeah, there, there was this like, you know, if you wanted to teach a literature class that was like, you know, one that you designed, then you had to teach a summer class. That was the only way you were going to to get it. Interesting. Yeah, I've taught 300 level courses. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, um, that's really cool. I actually just did cool. that in the fall. I taught Whitman's Multitudes, critiquing yeah. Whitman's that's, idea that's of democracy. Yeah. yeah, and I also taught queer literature in the 19th century. Oh, very wow. Cool. Yeah. That's so that's cool. That was a few that's years awesome. ago. Yeah, so I mean, I think when I've counted, I've taught nine different courses. That's amazing. That is so fantastic. like that is the opportunity that I speak very highly about. So, you know, Adam and I get into a lot of nitty gritty and we're very honest, but yeah, I always tell everyone who asks that the Stony Brook English department really is pedagogically advanced mm -hmm. for the PhD students. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and that's always been Stony Brook strength. I mean, whenever yeah. I mention the university to faculty at other 
universities, they always mention, oh yeah, that's the university that really values teaching yeah. for their grad students. That's true, but it's, but it's all the more true now that you're still, I mean, you, you've gotten to teach these classes in the department rather than having to so surrender fine. yourself yeah. to, the, to the adjunct market. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But that's not true of Suffolk everyone. A bit. Yeah. yeah, she taught at Suffolk a little bit. Oh, okay. Okay. And uh, hmm. I managed to use, I, yeah, I think I managed most of the time to get enough classes at Stony Brook. Yeah, and you okay. said that you were teaching for um, women's and gender. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it wasn't yet sexuality studies. I don't even, it kept going back and forth while we were there. I don't even remember now. Okay, well, now it's women's gender sexuality, but you were able to take some, teach some courses there, which, mm -hmm. you Once know. Once we had you, the certificate, yeah. Right. And do you think that that, um, I mean, now we're entering into uh, your current teaching positions. Do you think that that was an asset to- Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, 100%. Yeah, so I feel we can now reveal and unearth this Phantom of the Opera curtain. That's a very, that's a very niche uh, <laughs> illusion at the beginning of the overture, but- um, what was, what do you think was the deciding factor for you to get hired for different teaching positions? I mean, it's a very, not probably a question you can answer. Uh, applying everywhere and being willing literally to go there. Mm. <laughs> that's not the, that's not the case with your current job. No, not with my current job, but I think initially, right. Um, kind of like applications of desperation. I mean, we have like maybe four states that were like no-goes. And it was like Alaska, Oklahoma, North Dakota, and Arkansas or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think I applied I'm, to some jobs yeah, in say, Arkansas. I'm sure I applied in Arkansas. I'm, I'm sort of curious. North Dakota and Alaska makes Alaska. sense because you're not fleeing a murder charge, but. It's too far. <laughs> it's just too far. It's just yeah. too expensive to get up there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, you know, we I, I took like a, a it, sometimes I took jobs that, you know, didn't even pay for like the moving costs, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely again, just perseverance and, and of course a little bit of good fortune, right. That it was before the pandemic. Right. Um, and that when I got to those places, places where there were opportunities, I took advantage of them. So the job in Texas, which other people probably wouldn't maybe have wanted to apply to, right. Cause initially it was posted as a non-tenure track. Hmm. high teaching load job. Um, there were only 40 candidates apparently. And so in a pool like that, it's easier to, to shine. Um, so that job then turned into a tenure track position. Hmm. And basically, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of like, you know, mentorship of faculty there. But hmm. if you had an idea, you could essentially run with it and just do it, right? So- What do you mean by that? Like if I wanted to put on an event, Mm -hmm. you know, I, had, I wanted to do like these Jane Austen events. My chair was like, well, if you, if you reserve the room and plan it and advertise it yourself, then sure, go and ahead. And ask people for money. And <laughs> you know, and sometimes you would say like, oh, maybe you should ask this person for right. some money for the afternoon tea cakes, right? Oh, um, so where did yeah. the money come from? Yeah, or I mean, like you, I would, you can talk in generalities if you it's can. It's usually like a dean's discretionary fund. So most oh, deans okay. will have like, you know, a couple thousand dollars a semester, maybe even more in a bigger school. 
mm-hmm. that they can spend on on stuff like that. Yeah. Like That's the Provo awesome. series, like a dean will have right. yeah. Provost yeah, events. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That's a great yeah. idea. And so sometimes, or sometimes you get it from the community. I yeah. Think we talked mm-hmm. to one of the banks one time. Really? Yeah. So you didn't have yeah. to go through red tape, it sounds like. Like there I mean, was no, well, there's red tape, but like no, like you. There were times when you could just, yeah. you just needed to know who to talk to. Yes. Okay. But you weren't yeah, stepping absolutely. over, fac- on stepping on faculty's toes. Not as such. Oh. It shouldn't have been. It shouldn't have been. Um, but you know, like I was told early on that like they really love grants, right? And so there's not a lot of grants in the humanities, uh, but there every state has its own humanities division of like the National Endowment for the Humanities. Mm-hmm, so in Texas, right. it's Texas Humanities, and the dean at the time had used to be on their like board, right? Mm-hmm. And there was an you know kind of a, a frustrated that more faculty weren't applying for these grants, uh, and the grants were very very specific about what you could use them for. Uh, so it took a lot of finagling, but I would work with like the grants office at the university and we put together this like celebration of Shakespeare and Cervantes. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you could do stuff like that because no one was going to say no, as long as you did all the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I wanted to do the women's studies minor, because they didn't have one, then it, again, it was like, well, as long as you do all the work and you figure out how to do it so the curriculum committee is happy, then we're happy. So, mm-hmm. so let's, let's jump into those waters for a moment if you don't mind um what what is all of the work for bringing a minor to a university yeah it's a lot well you have to create uh there has to be at least one introductory class um if it's not already on the books which um there wasn't so you had to teach that class yeah, so that was going to be one of my classes. So again, it, you know, if you only teach two two, then your department might not be able to let you teach something else than what they need you to teach. By the time I proposed the minor, I was on a three three, and our department basically prioritized upper level classes for senior faculty. So it was like, well, I could teach intro women's and gender studies, or I can teach composition. And I'm like, well, which would you rather teach? I mean, I so. like teaching composition, but but it's no, it's it's definitely it's definitely amazing that you that you got to do this. Well, I had done. I've taught a lot of composition already, and and right. you know, I would I hadn't right. been able to teach intro to women's and gender studies because there was no program for it. Mm-hmm. And if you have a class that doesn't count for anything, then students don't want to take it. Right. Um, yes. So you propose these courses. There are special forms you fill out. You have to create a syllabus um, and a rationale. And then you have to kind of create a, a kind of outline of what the program is going to look like. And I, I kind of based it on what I did at Stony Brook. You know, I was like, well, at Stony Brook, there's only a few classes that are women's studies classes. And then you take electives mm-hmm. across the university. And I knew of enough courses that would qualify. That uh, you mean like in the philosophy department or in the sociology department? Or whatever. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, had a, I had a minors in gender studies as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. And- most of my courses came from psychology, sociology. Mm-hmm. That's um, pretty standard everywhere. Yeah, it's a very social science, yeah. right? Dependent on the literature too and history. When I had created, I had created a class called gender and literature Ooh. prior to this. So then that class was going to count for the minor. So uh, it was like a little like double recruit. Mm. Um, so yeah, yeah. So it, I mean, because I was yeah. doing an interdisciplinary program, 
I didn't need to create a ton of new courses. I just needed to create a small quantity hmm. of new okay. courses. Yeah, I just remember I took this amazing witchcraft in the Western tradition course. Oh, with one amazing. History. That does sound like fun. Yeah, there was a class like that there at TAMU that you could take, I think. Was like yeah. the history of women's religion. And yeah, women's I have to religion. shout out the professor Elizabeth Hyde because she was incredible, and so is Emily Filardo, the head of the women's studies. Um, yeah, all of those professors I had were truly wonderful. Um, but yeah, so you had a foundation, it seems, Ula, but you, you know, it still took a lot of time and energy. And I mean, did you do you feel like you got that support? from the English department? No. <laughs> they just didn't stand in your way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess yeah. that's support in a- That's a kind of support. <laughs> that's a, like, at least you had the drawbridge down. Yeah, I mean, I, I had the support in the sense that, you know, there no, no was no- was opposing. No, and there was no one else doing that. Right. And in fact, if I was taking up my credit, my teaching credits with women's studies, then I wasn't, you know, competing for those coveted upper level English uh -huh. major courses. Right. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. yeah did so anyone... Dropping enrollments, you know, then people were having to cut upper level class offerings because they weren't making. And... Yeah. yeah. And I mean, Catherine, do you also have the same... Well, yeah, you had the certificate and you were teaching. Yeah, know, gender I, tend to, studies. I tend to more often when I teach for women's studies, I tend to teach intro to queer studies mm -hmm. um, or depending on the school, like intro to LGBTQ, you know, whatever they call it there. Um, and so that's what I taught at TMU. Um, and you taught it at Stony Brook first. And I taught at Stony Brook first, yeah. Mm. Yeah, which we do have that in the English catalog, there is a, cause I've looked like I, when I was doing queer 19th century literature, um, it hadn't been taught in a while. Actually, I heard that Catherine was the last person who taught that type of course. The intro so I was bringing back a- In the women's, stu in the women's studies department? Or the no, it was department? in uh, the English department. Oh yeah. Gay so yeah, that was gay and lesbian lit. Yeah. Yep. So I'm talking, I'm talking about intro to Queer studies and women's studies. Okay. Um, yeah. I'm yeah, curious. I, did. I I'm taught curious, that as a, that like was the one, my one upper division uh, um, English. English course that I was out, allowed to teach. And it was a summer course. Mm. And nobody told me that the summer courses they let anybody into. So I, I designed it as a an English major course, assuming that people that were going to take a 3000 level or whatever it is there. <laughs> English class, you know, enjoyed reading, but. <laughs> but that wasn't your option. I think I have one, I think I have one English major in there. And uh, they were like, wait, we have to read how many books? I was like, what is going on here? It was very, it was very eye yeah. yeah, that's really funny. So I have a, I have a, a sort of follow-up question. One of the things that I felt like was, was kind of a staple of my graduate persona, like when I was actively in the PhD program, was that people would always ask me what to read next. And so I'm curious if you guys get the same sort of question and especially mm -hmm. if you get the same sort of question about like women's and gender studies and gay and lesbian studies, like you were saying, um, or sorry, gay and lesbian literature, like you were saying, like like a lot of, I mean, the, the, the issue of canonicity is such, right? That like 
I mean, there's Whitman in huge uh, bl uh, blinking lights, but a lot of the, you mm. know, a lot of the pre Not after this century... teaching article of mine comes out, but. Oh my goodness. Because <laughs> I'm really uh, poking holes in this, but. No, I know, but like a lot, a lot of the pre 20th century uh, literature, like it's, you, you have to, you have to look for you have to look for the 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 queerness. Like nobody nobody wow. told me when I was in school that 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 Mar that Christopher Marlowe was essentially a queer icon. I had to figure that out by myself, you mm -hmm. know. And it's that's because you're reading the wrong stuff, boy. <laughs> no, that's true. You're reading the wrong literature. <laughs> it's I mean, good. Go read. Go. No, but you know, go there read. Are, you know, you could actually read. Um, like Jeremy Bentham, and I don't know if you know who that is. Do you know who that is? Adam? We know someone who's yeah, written a whole book. Okay, about so Ola does. Okay. Well, no, no, no. So, so, so that's my question. Let's assume that when I'm reading 19th century literature, I'm reading the wrong stuff. Um, but, and 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 what should I read next? Hmm. Wait, just just really quickly and say, like, if you don't see the queer stuff with like Jane Eyre and Helen Burns, like, oh immediately, yeah, then, yeah. Then, Maybe you just yeah. forgot your queer vision goggles. Or, or sometimes, you, sometimes you think you read it as, you know, when you're younger in high school or something, mm -hmm. and, um, you, you know, you're, you're reading it and you, you don't see it. Right. And then later you're like, how could I have missed this? I'm yeah. just like, it's yeah, like, yeah. Well, it's like the or, or you'll come across something that's so gay. I was just, I was just talking about, um, one of my dissertation chapters was on school novels, like boarding school novels. Um, oh, cool. that's and, uh, and how I mean they're so queer they're just ridiculous like they're like sleeping in the same bed they're giving each other presents they're telling each other mm -hmm. they're never going to get married they love each other I don't ever <laughs> want to get married because then I'd have to be apart from you it's just like you, yeah. you can't not read it there's it's just like over the top yeah I can relate but, to these but the audience of the time didn't read it that way and, and so my argument about... was that yeah. As you trace the school literature, you see the like homophobia creep in mm -hmm. um, because all of a sudden it stops. Like mm -hmm. by about 1920, they're not having these like over the top crushes anymore. Interesting. And you're not Passions. talking about Morris by Ian Farster. Yeah, I mean, I, I did women, but well, that one's okay. that one's obviously not. No one's going to miss that. Um, yeah, can, yeah, can, I, true. can I tell you something funny? Yeah. In I remember this happened in 2009. I was um, I was an assistant teacher in a summer school, and I was like I was in a really big high school reading kick. Like I was rereading high school books, you know, canon high school books, and like reading ones that I had had overlooked. And I went to visit some friends. Uh, I went to meet meet up with some friends in a bar, and I had a separate piece in my hands because oh that's I the one I mentioned that book. That's oh, the one I was reading, piece. and and the bar and and I and I. And I plunked it onto the bar, and the bartender and the bartender just looks at me, and with no preamble, and we'd never met before, hmm. she says, "That's the gayest book I've ever read." <laughs> I love it. It's amazing. I actually have to read that book, so thank you. You reminded me about it on my bookshelf. It's, it's so good. Um, it's so good. But, but yeah. to answer your question, you know, it really would depend on yes, yeah. person. Sure, I could see that. And your lived identity. If you wanted like 19th century, I'm sure both of us could say lots of it. And if you wanted 20th century, that's like my 
my time period. That's for yeah, I was just saying, 19th century is in my period, so we don't have to center it on the 19th century. We can go to the 18th century. We could. Which is Ola's time period. Yeah, yeah, one book from the 18th century. Yeah, so one book from the, yeah, I love that. Yeah. And I keep saying like a, a queer book or? Just Maybe a, just a book that you relate to in a queer, Oh, has a queer theme. That it, you... it could be. It could be like a, just a just a book that you wish more people would read. Okay, well, I want to stay in the queerness, but okay, <laughs> we're making Adam uncomfortable. No, no. Oh, come on. Read one book, <laughs> and Adam loves the canon. So that everyone. Oh, for crying just out loud! One, but I think one of the ones that I actually enjoy quite a bit because a lot of 18th century literature is interesting, but not necessarily enjoyable. Hmm. <laughs> Clarissa, um, Pamela. Yeah, that's true. I <sighs> Pamela is queer. I st I still haven't gotten all the way through Tristram Shandy. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, yeah, but I would say I, giving us faces. If you want to read some really enjoyable, like what I would call like an 18th century romp, <laughs> I would read Clarissa. Mm -hmm. Or Jesus, see you put they put the word in my no, mouth. Sorry, Roxana. Jesus, Roxana. Okay. By okay that is that is a romp and it does have some queer stuff mm -hmm. in it with her maid her like servant slash slash bedmate amy <laughs> um and there's a lot of sex and and partying and wow. questionable racial outfit wearing mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> and pretending to be a quaker <laughs> and <laughs> don't we all yeah we're about to do that tonight. <laughs> right, put on your turban. Oh, yeah. And then put on your Quaker ass outfit. Um, oh, and, and yeah, it's 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 fascinating. And there's a lot in there about gender politics of the 18th century, racial politics. I mm. mean, you could write books and books just about that book. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, and I really want to do an article about the, the a, like a lesbian reading mm. of um that relationship so oh you should maybe somewhere down the line yeah um yeah. that might pop up but yeah I would say that that's a you know canonical 18th century work that definitely has queer elements yeah. um but also some really interesting gender stuff yeah oh let's put it in conversation with Hannah Foster's The Coquette mm. that's now an American text but yeah um, you know I know some century literature <laughs> Edgar Huntley, like yeah, yeah, but I feel like this is where the transatlantic. I mean, does your work go into transatlantic research, Ula? Uh, yes, actually, Ooh. because I write about um, the history of the pirates and the stories of Mary Reed and Anne Bonny, the female pirates who were convicted um, in Jamaica. I want to say, um, and their stories take place in the in, in both England and the West Indies. So. Hmm. Oh, there's that. Um, Tell us a little more about that. Oh, gosh. I mean, what's fascinating about Mary Reed and Anne Bonny is that they become kind of cultural icons. If you Google their names together, you will find like massive amounts of children's books, like books for girls. They're like, Mary Reed and Anne Bonny, the cool chicks of the Caribbean, you know, <laughs> like shit like that, um, which is crazy because their story is all about how brutal they are and about how like they're sexy wenches who like go aboard ships so they can like get with men. Um, <laughs> And if you watch the show Black Sails on um, 
No, it's not Showtime. Stars. It's Stars. Um, <laughs> uh, you will actually see Anne Bonnie and Calico Jack Rackham as characters on the show. So the show does this interesting thing of like blending like characters from literature, like Long John Silver, with real pirates from history and and kind of putting them all in the same setting right this 18th century pirate world Ooh, um, which i just have uh, as an article coming out mm-hmm. in um this new collection of essays called transatlantic women travelers so ah cool and when is that coming just out, came out. It just oh it came just out, came out okay it's so everyone print. can now access it in print um, yes I, i'll send you the link i don't have the hard copy in front of me because um it got sent to my parents' address because we were moving last year. <laughs> but we'll include it in our show notes so everyone can access yeah. it. And yeah. as you're talking about work, uh, well, actually, let me ask Catherine, do you, does your work go into the transatlantic realm? It does. It's very much transatlantic, yeah. Oh, nice. Um, so what are you working on? Um, so right now, right now, actually, I'm doing American. So that's, that's not a good example, but it's usually transatlantic. Um, Often what I like to do is like, is like read this sort of like um, um, how the, the European versions of things get, get taken up in America. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of always what I've been looking at even all the way back through like my undergraduate um, honors thesis. I like that idea of like, this thing was written here and then all these American authors did this with it, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. There are articles about your published one my yeah oh yeah so my yeah my article is one of my recent articles is about how all these american authors after the the publication of the well of loneliness um in 1928 yeah which like it was widely banned in europe but in america it was actually not banned um Mm. so um it was widely available in the states and and that meant that there was a lot of basically rip-offs and so um (laughs) fan fiction fan fiction and so i wrote about this like fan fiction lesbian fiction written in like just right after like 1929 to 32 um does gertrude wouldn't exist and you can't you know it's i like to see what they did with the like two you know femme butch character and how that gets adapted into the american does gertrude stein have a take on the well of loneliness well they were like sort of um you know a lot of a lot of (laughs) Radcliffe Hall's friends, because they were good friends actually, but yeah. um, they hung out at the same salon and whatever, but almost nobody actually liked her writing. <laughs> you know, it was always sort of this like, uh, you know, to her face, like, oh yeah. And then like sniping behind her back, like, I can't believe she's getting all this this publicity. It's such a shitty book, right? <laughs> um, the Well of Loneliness. Yeah, yeah. Like oh. Virginia Woolf um, was asked to speak on behalf of the book when it was going to be banned right and uh she's like well of course i'm going to because nothing should be censored but it's still a piece of crap right <laughs> <laughs> um so i think a lot of people felt that way that, hmm. you know, wait was this before just because i don't know the publication history that well was this before okay. virginia wolf writes um orlando or after it's the same year 1928 is like a major year for, well, um, for lesbian fiction it's like this kind of like I sent some jealousy. I sent some literary yeah, jealousy. There's another book by a male author, um, um, Compton McKenzie. This just came up. I finally remembered his name. Ooh. That also comes out in 1928. Mm. Um, they were like back to back, the three of them. 
Maybe mm-hmm. you should write a book that's like about the year 1928. <gasps> yeah, oh, because that, that, author, that scholar already did it. Uh, what's her name? That she's we see her ASEC sometime. Mm. You can create a mini series oh, about Chris Wilson. No. Oh, um, she's also she's like a modernist. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know who you're talking about. Um, oh, yeah. something. Anyway, she wrote she wrote something. It's like 1928. I, you know, why can't I think of her name? Yeah, I still want a really good TV series with the Bloomsbury Group. And yeah, so many of them are terrible. The ones that are out. Yeah, the adaptations are just really. I could see that. Yeah, it there doesn't one, work. There that was one well. a couple of years ago called um, something in squares or life in squares, yeah. something like that. It's just not good at all. You yeah. talking about Sue Lancer? Sue Lancer, yeah. Yeah. Oh, but well, since yeah, Sue Kathy... Lancer has a, has an article all about, or it might even be a full book about 1928. Oh. Mm. So we have a modernist slash transatlantic 20th early 20th century scholar in front of us. Um, I have to ask, is it true that Gertrude Stein, because I always read this, was the first to actually start to use gay in her literature in terms of the sexual orientation? I mean, I don't know. I don't know if she would be first, but I think she made it famous. I would give her that. Yeah. Okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah. She deserves those roses in Perla Chaz's cemetery. Yeah. Because by the time she's publishing that story, um, tender buttons is that what it is oh um, hey okay yeah and it's like almost the whole channel almost the whole uh chapter is she was gay being gay with her girlfriend and they were gay together and they went to the gay cafe and it's like it's like gay every like third word um, <laughs> um it's very funny but yeah so by then i, I can't imagine she invented it you know what i mean into the literary parlance yeah yeah okay. it's, it's obviously a, a joke it's like an in joke for anybody who knows what Mm. <laughs> I feel like there's something there. You just created a certain. Yeah, I want to see this tender buttons article. Funny. Yeah. We, we just gave the listeners so many texts at once. They're like, "Okay, what is that? What's this?" Oh God, yeah, this this is <laughs> gonna, gonna be. A great... I was just, I was just thinking that this is gonna be the longest. The good, uh, the uh, longest bibliography of, of any of our, yeah. Yeah. Well, and now Catherine's working on an article on like lesbian road trips and Carol, yeah. originally published as The Price of Ooh. Salt by um, Patricia Highsmith. Patricia Highsmith, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking forward to that. Ooh, I heard I'm her friends on it. I liked, yeah, that film version's interesting. Mm-hmm. I enjoy it. I do. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> well yeah, so my, multiple my conversations one, like, that. Sorry. Yeah, my new article, I go backwards from Carol. Mm. So it's, it's similar in this sort of like echoing, right? Um, mm. So I, she, Carol is uh, 1952, I think. And then I did a 1940s novel and I did a 1930s novel. And just to see how the car um, functions. Well, says like a, mm. it's just like an extension of queer space and Ooh. a method of, of queer mobility and escape. Hmm. I like that as a device. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to chat with you a lot about <laughs> what you're yeah. working on. Um, um, yeah, yeah. So- sidebar. Yeah. But sidebar. I also want to ask, because it kind of ties right into Ula's very recent book that was just published, published called Sapphic Crossings, Cross-Dressing Women in 18th Century British Literature. Um, so just Sapphic Crossings, 
Mm. I'm curious, and then Adam, you know, can ask his fan questions. But um, I'm just curious, how did you arrive at that? So it's, it's actually an interesting story. So remember how I said that I pursued getting these uh, humanities grants um, in Texas. So I used one of those grants to bring um, Janine Bartos and Christina Straub to Laredo because they had curated an exhibit about um, Jane Austen and Shakespeare's fandoms for the Folger. Uh, they'd done this whole exhibit and done talks on it. And so I, mm. Christina is my mentor. And as you can see, she's blurbed on the back of my uh, yeah. book. She's a mentor, friend, peer, um, and just a lovely person in general. And, and she was the outside reader on my dissertation. And so I asked her, I was like, would you, two of you be willing to come and do a talk and we could get a grant for you and we could you know, pay you some nice money um, and have this really lovely event um, in Laredo. And so they agreed. And you know, we had, of course, dinner and schmoozing um, after the event. And uh, you know, I, I kind of mentioned that you know I'm getting close to finishing the book, and I don't have a good title for it. And so Janine is like, she brings out a pad. She actually she takes like a napkin at the tapas bar that we're at. She got a pen, and she's like, so tell me, like, what are some like you know keywords of your book, right? And so I was like, well, sapphism cross-dressing and I listed a couple others. And so she started kind of playing with these different words and, and she was like, well, what are static crossing, static mm -hmm. crossings, crossing, crossing sapphism. And I was like, oh, what kind of like sapphic crossings, you know? And so that was just how it happened. Thanks, Janine. Wow. Nice. Thanks, Janine. <laughs> <laughs> and also- yeah, She's a um, UT often, so. Uh, yeah, it was just very nice of her to be like, let's workshop this right now, right yeah. here, right now after dinner. Yeah. I, like, and I know okay. we're going to get into some really juicy parts of this. I like that <laughs> gossipy language salaciousness, but I do want to oh just mention that when you read Ula's um, acknowledgement section, I just want to thank you uh, for how much you forefront the graduate students. Um, with I mean, I started chronologically, so. <laughs> yeah. And it's, but like, you really also just mentioned, I know Adam's also part of this Zoom writing group that we both co-created. And like your writing group takes center stage too in a certain yeah. part of the acknowledgement. So I think oh, yeah. just to see how many people have shaped your work is the narrative that I think everyone needs to know of how collaborative these projects are. Like yeah. how the book comes to us. Um, and my acknowledgments feels very short compared to other people's. I will say that, and, you know, I was like, who else read this? <laughs> um, so I probably missed some people along the way, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely would not have gotten to the dissertation without the writing group. I wouldn't have gotten my articles out without writing groups. I wouldn't have gotten the book done. I literally had people from my writing group help me with the index like unpaid, which was incredible and, and yeah, just amazing. And that's big. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Thank goodness you know, for writing groups. <laughs> Sorry? No, no, I was just saying, this is like the good pitch for writing groups. Every, every chance to plug the writing group. That is- yeah, I think we might how, just use this clip right now as a marketing <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You have to, I'll give you a clip. I'll just say, you have <laughs> to have a writing group. It keeps you motivated. It keeps you accountable. It gives you immediate feedback. And the best thing about it is, is that the best thing to do for a writing group is to bring your messiest, ugliest writing. 
Mm. There's no point in bringing something polished to your writing group. Mm -hmm. That's useless. Bring so something I'm, messy, bring something hot and sticky, mm. something gross, something <laughs> that you just like crapped out, you know. Whoa. This is from, yeah, this is so, like, so I'm all like, mixed with I uh, so I'm curious. Okay. Are you are you guys in the same writing group? No. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's a good question. So so Dude, what are we you were, we were briefly the year yeah. after we graduated. Hmm. So 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 tell us a little bit of like how long have you been in the in the in, in your respective writing groups, hmm. or have you how long have you been associated with them? What what is the um, what's the pattern that you guys have set weekly or monthly or whatever or daily like whatever whatever you guys do? Hmm. For me, it's been we've been lucky if we can do once a month. Sure. Um, and I work with two women at my university. Okay. Okay. Um, and that's actually kind of recent for me. I, I didn't have a writing group before that, except for the one I was in with Ula the year after we graduated. Mm. 2013, 2014? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then there was um, a break and then you started one more recently? Yeah. And oh. that was actually really cool. Like, my university was like, oh, does anybody want to do writing groups? Like, <laughs> Great. That's they fantastic that, that they facilitated. Yeah, I, I don't know that it, I've heard other people say it didn't work for them, but I found a really nice. Well, that's, I mean, that's, that's set of women, really nice. I think that's not necessarily an argument against it. You're never going to find a thousand people for whom the same thing works. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What, 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 what you hope to find is enough people who are willing to try something and who are willing to be flexible based on the results and so on. And I think probably what's unusual about our group is that we are very, we have different different fields, you know, mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's why it didn't work for some of the other people in my department. Where they're so, like, what are the what are the fields? Um, one of them is in, uh, English education. Um, okay. One is, um, I guess, one of the other ones is a modernist too. But um, we were put together because we also do creative writing, and mm -hmm. uh, but right. we do share. So we we mostly work on creative writing together, but we do share a scholarship too. That's great. And then, yeah, so, and the makeup of your writing group will, uh... Um, so, we, I had this writing group in, at Tennessee Tech that, um, someone had created, and it was, like, every week, it was very rigorous, once a week, every week at lunchtime on Wednesdays, and no matter what, you had to bring something when it was your turn, so sometimes it would just be scraps, right, and I think that was actually really good training, because I had had a writing group that was, like, monthly, uh, with PhD students um, once a month and it was often more eating than <laughs> discussing <laughs> uh, but it was still helpful um, so but professionally right I, I had this like training of like you have to churn something out you just have to churn something out even right. if it's just a paragraph right. that's good um, since the pandemic started and it's been harder to find time for all of us to meet on a single day and, and read someone and give them in-depth feedback um, what we've been doing to keep things together is we've been doing write-ins. Um, so we, it's like 1 p.m. Central time on Wednesday and on Friday. And whoever can just shows up in the Zoom meeting and we just, you know, we chat for a little bit and then we work and then we chat and then we work. And so that's kind of a, more like a writing, a write-in kind of accountability group. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm hoping, I'm hoping we can go back to our workshopping in the fall. I do miss it. So interesting because I moderate a write-in accountability group six days a week. Wow. Six to seven. This week is seven days. 
but we meet two hours a day. But the only reason I can commit that time is because I'm dissertating. Right. Um, and I, yeah. we write. Um, and we have a lot of creative writers too, which there we go. Nice segue, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. Um, we have a creative <laughs> writer among our midst. Um, her name is Charlotte Green. Uh, Catherine, would you like <laughs> to speak to maybe just the origin of your recent novel, From the Woods? How that came to um, Yeah, so I've been writing horror for a couple of years now and, um, and I've won awards, two awards. Congratulations. Yeah, um, and this one is probably at least gonna be a nominee, um, sounds like it anyway. Ooh. And uh, my first horror novel, Gnarled Hollow, was actually up for a Lambda, which I was really excited about, um, but it didn't win. <laughs> Um, it was still that's good it did win the golden crown uh literary association for horror uh and then the next year um with legacy and that was this last summer and that also won um so i'm hoping this one will be a a, a pop in um but anyway so this one is about um backpacking sort of um and it's it's um i'm a backpacker i'm a hiker grew up in colorado and it's just um, something I love to do and mm -hmm. um, I think anyone that's spent you know a night in the woods knows that it's creepy even without something supernatural happening so um, I was oh, yeah. just kind of thinking about um, the extension of that so what you know uh, my parents were in search and rescue for a really long time and you know they're oh, always wow. like middle of the night have to go out and rescue someone and and it can take days to carry people out of the woods and oh, my um, mm -hmm. so I was thinking and we had a run-in one time we were we were uh backpacking in north carolina south carolina and um i almost stepped on a big rattlesnake and so for me it was it was just like one of those like so but you know the rest of the trip you're like what would we've done we're in the middle of nowhere mm. so one of us would have had Wait, to just so you saw, you saw a rattlesnake i almost stepped on it it was huge <laughs> she screamed um but it's just like so to me that with horror it's always the what if that's really you right, know, yeah. right. Stephen King, it's like what's you know the, the whole the whole point of horror is what if and, yeah well um, one of the great ghost stories I, I wish I could remember the name it's by Turgenev there's not even there's not even necessarily a supernatural element it's people talking about the supernatural yeah creeping yourself out yeah creeping exactly like and and the question the the it's it's left an open question by the end of the story did anything actually happen and mm -hmm. that's enough yeah because that's what I mean, we even, all experience even turn of the screw can be interpreted that way too oh yeah could mm. absolutely just be the governess is a lunatic yeah but like what's also can't, can't interpret Stephen King that way <laughs> no no not but, so much yeah I'm always Pardon. drawn to that well I'm really excited to just read more of your work I was about to say Charlotte Catherine well. I'll say Charlotte now, why not? This is fun. Um, because like even Turn of the Screw, but I actually had just finished a book club discussion with The Haunting of Hill House. And mm -hmm. I really like Shirley Jackson. And I love, yeah. well, everyone in, who listens to this podcast knows I'm a Stephen King uh, aficionado, but um, yeah. the absences and the gaps in horror are what I find the most mm. psychologically terrifying. Yeah, and um, that's interesting. 
Yeah, yeah so I'll, I'll, plug, uh, I'll plug Gnarled Hollow again. I think you'll really like that one. Okay, so I'm going to turn to Gnarled Hollow after From the Woods. Yeah, like an ode to Shirley Jackson, basically. Ooh, well, like, nice. like I felt that for me, like, and I am not a huge Stephen King fan, but I know how much of a Stephen King fan she is. And one of the few Stephen King books that we've actually listened to together is The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon. Nice. So when I was reading From the Woods, I was like, oh my God, that, that, that's, that's, it's the book that's kind of being channeled mm-hmm. here for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Like so Naro Paulo yeah. is channeling Hunting of Hill House from the Screw. It's it's a ghost story. So you'll have to you'll have to give us the, the names so we can we can follow up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have one of, I, sorry, I just want to read one quote. Go on, go on. Because sure. I know this is not hard, but I think it just shows the range of uh Charlotte's writing. Um I love this pseudonym. Okay. But Ooh, the relationship really works. The relationship really works between the main characters and the sex is steamy, but not over the top. Do you know what book that is referencing? Maybe Pride and Porters. I don't know. I'm not sure. Close, close. I love how I'm questioning the writer. A Palette for Love. Oh, okay, okay. Which, um, yeah. We'll have to check that one out too. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the Pride so, so, is the Jane Austen, uh, obviously. Oh, um, okay. I see. So I, see what you did. I, the one of the books that I have by my bedside right now is the is the short stories of Shirley Jackson, and I've like because because I realized I'd I'd read the lottery I don't know how many times and basically nothing else, um, and so I started reading and and she she really does this thing that I love more mm-hmm. than. I want to say more than life itself, which is to, just to have a short story where absolutely nothing happens. It's just two people in a room, incredibly uncomfortable, and then one of them leaves. Mm-hmm. And 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 of course, it's the writing and the characterization and the evocation of of the the larger world that's happening around them, refracted through these two characters that that makes it an interesting story and not just biding time writing words flipping the pages whatever people, have you read that one i don't i don't remember i'm not going to remember any of the names but but so i may have um but Probably. but like better short stories what what people what people say every time about the lottery which is kind of a horror story um is that it's it's that like it's the combination of the of the like really deep horror tropes um of like mistrust and like the sort of i don't know occult and so on mm-hmm. with the the sort of sim- simple evocation of everyday life right like there's this the the the, the grandpa who's grousing about how the tiles aren't made of wood anymore yeah yeah yeah, yeah and stuff like that. my that, day What's yeah, yeah, yeah. old man werther <laughs> <laughs> it's my 84th right. year in the lottery 84 yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh you, oh you need to narrate it oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've taught that story i don't even know how many times i could probably recite it i was in a play version of the lottery in high school i got to be really? a villager who throws a <laughs> stone nice <laughs> what, ask, so so what were the stones made of too like was it was a one act Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, please, let's not draw this out. It's a, I mean, no, a beautiful was... uh, PBS used to do this. It was, it was called a um, story, short story. Spe- I don't, 
thing, and I can't remember, but they would they would make these really short films mm. of short stories, and they did an incredible version of the lottery. It's oh, so wow. it's so Whoa, good. I need to watch See, once it's upon like a once minutes, upon a time. You know, Sorry, I, I would often like we would I would teach the story and then there's still enough time to watch the whole thing. Oh, nice. Once upon a time, what I would have wanted would be like a 15 minute version of the lottery <laughs> and then an uncomfortably long second act that was just people pelting a guy with stones. Yeah, yeah. Goodness. Wow. <laughs> um, I'll get the uh, I'll get the point. Yeah. Make sure well, the make sure the audience gets it. Yeah, it seems that it's similar to I had watched A Rose for Emily with Angelica Houston. <laughs> Um, and I think that was done for P PBS. But um, yeah, and Adam, you're really getting to the heart of the difference between terror and horror, which I took a horror course as an undergrad. Mm -hmm. We read we read a lot of, uh, well, we read Stephen King, we read Pet Cemetery. Um, but Adam knows my favorite Stephen King novel, or he should by now he after episodes. I um, should, I wanna, I wanna say something rude, like, like Children of the Corn. <laughs> Mm. no no i know uh, i know he'll Get figure off. it out eventually it's about a young adolescent it's, girl it's carrie yes yes that's my favorite novel that's my i novel. think that's my favorite also yeah um because i read it i read it at just that age it was like yeah yeah we, we've had I this discussion before anyway. so we don't need to talk about Sorry. it um, these are important matters <laughs> but yeah the difference <laughs> between terror and horror but right there's an intersection and um if no one's seen it, the Haunting of Hill House recent Netflix series, I thought was just captivating. We watched like half of it. It yeah, was like it. It's traumatizing. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was good. I would have kept watching it. She doesn't like scary. So you don't like watching the visual. I just needed a little break. I, you know, you said you didn't want to watch it either. Uh oh, <laughs> we're into a spat. Uh -oh. I'm just kidding. She's um, always put more. She, she like invented. Yeah, I'm asking other. Do you want to watch? The, do you want to watch the rest? Do you want to watch the rest? You're like, oh, I don't really. That's not true at all. <laughs> well, not even a little bit. Because we have the 18th into. It seems like you go into the Regency, Ola. Mm -hmm. Okay, are you um, a Bridgertonian? God. Um, Speaking of horror I mean, films. Yes and no. Like I started, when we started together, we watched the first two episodes. And well, we'll that guy is smoldery hot. Yeah. Well, yeah. Give him that. Yeah. yeah. No, he's, well, and it was, he it was just so silly and like awkward. I don't know. The girls are way too, they seem way too young. Yeah. Compared to the men. It's, creep, it's creeping it, us out. It was like, when I was the first two episodes that I watched, I was oh like, man, goodness. I couldn't get into like the fantasy of it. It just seemed like really like. Like a the, child and an adult man. All the worst elements <laughs> of like an actual Regency arranged right. marriage. Right. Mm -hmm. I was like, of all the things to be realistic about, that's what you chose. Like, right. These past twenty-five-year-olds, I, I don't want. Well, see that's. That. I mean, that that's what that's what upset people so much. For instance, about Game of Thrones, right? Is that like he mm -hmm. was writing this medieval fantasy story, and so he had the girls actually be thirteen when they were getting married, which is gut wrenching. Well, it's, it's 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 gut wrenching if you like. It's it's not done for fetishistic reasons. It's done yeah. for like to, to really examine the psychology and the history and stuff like that. Mm. So if it, but, yeah. but they but changed I'll, it for the, for the show because that would be horrifying. Yeah. It would, it would just mean, turn I'll it into that, a different genre. You know, they had Reggae Jean, what's his name, on uh, SNL a couple mm -hmm. weeks ago. And they kind of like, you know, in his host um, monologue, they kind of 
made fun a little bit of all the smoldering looks on the show mm. and, and all the naughty bits <laughs> and and so I kind of got interested I was like yeah, maybe I'll watch a little bit more and so it's I really kind of put it on cast. it's a good cast um yeah I put it I, on while I was crocheting um and uh you know there's beautiful costumes oh yeah I'm listening to their podcast right now the official podcast oh, okay and I'm listening to all the like estate locations and mm-hmm. how like one day would be full of like six hours of traveling just to like get all this yeah. yeah it's really the behind the I scenes think we, i think we've scene. even realized that'd be like wait that last scene was in bath and this isn't you know whatever mm-hmm. yeah it's supposed mm-hmm. to all be in london is that right i don't know yeah but listeners you make your decision just as <laughs> lady whistledown says <laughs> just, yeah. yeah i haven't oh, finished goodness. it yet so i'm, okay, I'm not gonna spoil anything don't worry uh um, lady whistledown yeah, Lady Whistledown. Did I completely miss this boat? I think I you think never that's what saw happened. it, so you're not going to get the references. But it is <sighs> narrated by Julie Andrews, which you mean. Yeah, do I, and I do, do love that. All of a sudden, all these people are watching like Regency yeah. themed stuff, and it makes me hopeful that maybe there'll be even more original that's true. Regency content. Right? Let's stop like remaking Jane Austen's books, which I love. We don't need another episode, another version of Emma. Mm-hmm. Like, let's let's come up with new and original stories. Um, Even though that that's Emma that's was very fascinating. Did you see? Sorry, did you see that new Emma? Because I am curious about your hot take. It's pretty good. It's all right. Okay. It was zany. I called it zany. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it just felt I, like campy. It's, yeah, it's very over. There's no, there's no really narrative cohesion. Which, I mean, to me, the definitive Emma is always going to be clueless. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that is, exactly. No, that's my favorite version. But, um, and there is some male nudity in the new Emma. So just in case anyone's eager. Well, it's like my, one of my favorite adaptations of Pride and Prejudice, aside from Pride and Porters, of course, uh, <laughs> okay. is, uh, is Bridget Jones' Diary, mm-hmm. mm. both the book and the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm. The book is actually a very clever adaptation they're both clever they're and then the movie does a great job too yeah well people keep saying that about the bridgerton novels hmm. that they're well done uh, but i don't know i have not heard that I actually had students say that they're trash oh. so. <laughs> um, well i've heard that they're very fine romance novels oh okay, oh, okay. so i'm not yeah this well, could be a but whole that, that that depends on what you actually go to a romance novel for mm-hmm. well an escape yeah. usually just like I would say the television show is an escapist fantasy. Yeah, of course. Which, if that's, that's what, what you what look for. Is. That's why people love it. Romance yeah, is the number like one selling genre in the world. There wouldn't be publishers if there wasn't romance. Yeah. Not a single well, publisher could stay, yeah. stay, stay yeah. in business. Except yeah. like you well, And on our conclusion, which I know Adam and I are sad to end this, but well, um, we need to conclude. Um, yeah. Just for time's sake and being respectful to our guests. Um, So we always are now asking, um, speaking of now stopping the escapism of the pandemic, which brings the reality to light. Um, I don't know, how are you maybe, I think there's so many ways to go into this question, but You've talked a lot about projects, but, you know, Ola, you talked about your writing group and how it's kind of shifted a little during the pandemic, maybe shifted a lot. 
um, but it's still happening. Um, like, where are you both right now in terms of just your work, your, um, you know, you're raising your son. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot that you're juggling and balancing. Do you feel that you uh, don't want to say have it all settled? Um, but yeah, possible. what's maybe, how are you processing? Sure. What you're going through. You want to say? Go ahead. Well, I will say that not just the pandemic, but you know, specifically having a baby has made me really rethink my priorities and how I spend my time. And when I talk to other parents, it sounds like that's pretty common, right? Because you want to spend time with your child and you want to be there for those milestones and they need you, especially when they're that little, they just need you. Um, and sometimes you wish they didn't need you quite so much um, because you, you know, I, I still have all these ideas. And of course, because I'm not, have as much, I don't have as much time to work on everything. I feel like I'm just flooded with ideas right now. You know, I kind of want to be like, if you're a PhD student who needs ideas for a dissertation, just like shoot me an email and I will send you like 10. <laughs> um, because these are all articles and books that I, I don't have time to write, but I think someone should. Um, so I just, you know, I have like a little, a little file on the notepad app in my phone and I just write down like ideas for articles on there. Um, and so I, I have stuff in reserve, right? Um, but I've also been thinking a lot about, you know, what do I want to spend my time on? Mm. And what is, what is it really, what really matters to me? And, and so, yeah, so I've started a, a non-academic project that was, you know, born out of my journey to, to get pregnant and, and have a baby. Mm. And I want to, you know, I want to do this like nonfiction project. And so I'm also working on some short articles that are going to go in popular publications online um, to try to build up a readership. So I am kind of thinking like, you know, if I'm going to write stuff, I don't want to write stuff that's going to make some money. Like, cause I really would like to be a full-time writer. That's my dream. It's been my dream since I was like 10 years old to be a professional writer. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those funny things where like, you know, I, I got into the PhD program because I love teaching. I taught during my master's and I was like, I absolutely love teaching. And the research part kind of daunted me. And I'm at the point now where I'm like, I love teaching, I do. But if I could just make a, li make a living from like writing full-time, I think I would do that. Mm -hmm. And I, I love actually the idea of writing popular nonfiction. I think that would be just, you know, I love fiction, of course. I love novel writing. Um, and I do have some news, some good oh. news heading in that direction. Um, oh, but uh, I think I would actually really enjoy writing uh, and publishing nonfiction for a popular audience. Yeah, because you expressed your plugging sapphic crossings again, but maybe there'll be some nonfiction about dildo shops. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yes. ready for that. I'm ready. I'll, I will buy that book. Yeah, right? I, I was kind of thinking, I was like, man, how much fun would it be to do like a popular, like a general audience book on like the naughty 18th century, right? Oh, on the heels Mm -hmm. I think you it's been done for Philadelphia there's a book called sex among the rabble yeah um, and, but, I mean there's plenty of books like that it's yeah true, but I but think we, we would all be reading that with our with our stemmed glass of wine yeah but I think <laughs> we need that we need the popular book version I am yeah I mean I, I sometimes think about writing a like a young adult 
themed book about these cross-dressing women who Ooh. went on these amazing adventures, right? Oh, For like teenage girls or something. Or maybe a middle grade version. Um, yeah, there's so a lot of stuff like that out now, but I don't think there is anything specifically 18th century. So. Yeah, but I like how it's like stemming off from your academic research, like how it can spawn exactly. projects. Well, one of the well, one 10 of years my, of research should yield more than one book, right? It should. <laughs> mm -hmm. But one one of the one of my sort of pet peeves, since you're talking about young young adult uh, books, and like how, and and by extension, how we like set up heroes and role models and pedagogy and stuff like that, we're always throwing our laurels to the wrong people, right? Who who needs who needs Napoleon and Julius Caesar and all these other murderers? Like when when there are real heroes out there, and no, yeah, I agree. Sure. I agree. And we talk about this all the time about how like you know you never hear about women in history, exactly, um, or very rarely because history is still taught as like you know wars and treaties. Well, and even right. the war movies, I'm like, mm -hmm. there were actual women in the war too. Right. <laughs> right. You ever seen that 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 master cut of um. Saving Private Ryan, the 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 scenes with women is no. like a minute and a half or something like that. <laughs> yes. Really funny. Yeah. They weren't all <laughs> dead white men. Yeah. There's yeah. a book like, on it. Stories get told. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's or even a book. just biography films, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And then okay, so Catherine, how are you now checking in with this? Yeah, I feel like the the um having a son as a Affected more than almost anything is just yeah hmm. working learning how to work with that I think the pandemic has affected that too because we are not we don't feel safe putting him in daycare um, and I know some parents are doing that and I don't blame them for it at all right. <laughs> having done a semester and a half with him here at home it's uh it's not working well we'll just say that <laughs> we keep saying I was like god if I just had one day a week one day imagine what you could get done if you had eight hours of non-stop work and so instead it's just like half an hour here and 45 minutes and i'm just not that person i really like concentrated time like lengths mm -hmm. of time um i have managed to uh there was a long pause between um it's always it's always kind of funny because a book will come out and it looks like i just wrote it you know everybody's like, oh you know When's your next book coming out? It's like, well, actually, because this one that came out in December from the woods is going to be quite a big gap for the next one because my writing time is usually in the summer. Mm. Um, I do like a good half or three quarters of a book in the summer and then I finish it usually in the fall. Um, but this this year I wasn't able to write in the summer at all. So um, there'll be a, a, a significant gap before my next novel comes out. But um, Although really, it's going to be just over a year, right? Just over a year. Yeah. This is December to the following January. Yeah, but mm. still. Yeah, but luckily we have your extensive catalog to catch up on. We do. Does, that, no. does, does over a year count as a significant gap for someone in your yeah. in your in your corner um, in my, of the fiction in my market? Your kind of fiction, yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, so, uh, lesbian-centered fiction. A lot of the authors try and put out, you know, two years is the goal. But. Yeah, because, you know, successful genre authors like Nora Roberts, I mean, they're putting out two or three or four books a year. Yeah. And it's so like it's, a machine. It's pretty much the same. Got it. Um, I am kind of 
Stormer. Like, I think we can, there was a lot of optimism in this conversation, which I was happy about because, yeah. uh, um, you know, we're all, there are very roller coaster high moments. There can be very roller coaster low moments. Absolutely. And, um, I even just wonder, we've seen a lot of, like, even when we talked about Bridgerton or The Haunting of Hill House, like, these are all series that have been um, in pre production, no, post production, sorry. Um, I'm kind of curious, is there going to be a gap in our media in the mm -hmm. next few months just because productions were halted for so long? Well, our show, uh, Winona Earp had a long gap because of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, too, the other thing is that, like, someone was saying, you know, on Twitter, and I think this is very important to remember that, like, if you see people having academic stuff being published in 2020, 2021, um, you know, don't feel bad because all that stuff was written far before the pandemic. Yeah. Where you're going to see a downturn in publication is 2022, 2023, 2024. Two years from now, yeah. Because mm -hmm. that's just how long the academic publishing cycle is. Well, and they've already shown a, something like a 90% decrease in uh, article submissions by women in the last year, 90 to 95% oh. in some fields. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, we keep saying that, that the pandemic shows us the rifts between levels of privilege mm -hmm. but yeah there's yeah there's we'll link but I know the article you're talking about there was women have been so deeply affected by the pandemic especially with the second shifts mm -hmm. and I don't even know well, the current term now but at the beginning, like back in like March or, or sorry, April or May of last year, there was this whole thing about like male professors sneaking onto campus so they could work in their offices on campus because they just couldn't get any work done at home with the kids running around. This was and a like, major problem at my university. I'm like, well, what about the women? We were not allowed on yeah. campus, like period. In fact, your card, because we had to use cards to get into the building, um, wasn't supposed to work, but yeah, they were sneaking in and it was all men. Interesting. Like, what about the women? You know, like, don't they need to get their work done? They're not getting anything done with the kids running around. No. Right. They're, they're the ones who are expected to get work done and take care of their children, right. which is crazy. I mean, I've been right. saying- Pen in one hand, baby in the other. Since yeah. the beginning, I'm like, we should have all been paid to stay home and not work. Yeah. If they'd done that for three months, they would have saved hundreds of billions of dollars. And, and hundreds and so of thousands of lives. Jobs. Yeah. Just pay everyone their salary who's not an essential worker just to stay home. Yeah. Stay home. But, take care of your family. Don't stress out. Because, I mean, that's the other thing. Like, the mental toll of dealing with the pandemic. It's unreal. And then also working in a pandemic. And, you know, at my job, there really is no sign of a slowdown. No. Because of the pandemic. Mm. People are having just as many meetings. And More trying meetings. to plan events. They have meetings, like, back to back to back. Because they're like, well, you don't have to walk from one building to another. I'm like, I need a pee. Yeah, but you, you need to your dark voice. For you need minutes. breaks. You need, you know, brain breaks. What we do with, some, with the some ten year olds? The they've they've actually done like a hyper, like kind of Big Brother in response to working from home. My mom has a friend who's a, a, a biologist, and she runs a what's the word? Those studies, right? Um, and I don't remember what they're called. Case it's studies? Right. No. Whatever. Whatever. Anyway, it doesn't matter. 
Um, her boss says it makes them all get on like a Zoom call like this while they're working. Yeah. And they're only supposed to leave their computer during their lunch break, even though they're working from home. Hmm. Yeah. She says it's so incredibly stressful. And I'm like, yeah. of course it is. Yeah. That's yeah. disgusting. Yeah. It's disgusting. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like that's another thing about at least American society for sure has really shown just how ugly and, and, you know, productivity centered we are. It's like, we, no one should be worried about being productive right now. I mean, we are in a mass shared trauma event. Mm-hmm. Well said. But business yeah. is usual. Yeah. Let's <laughs> uh, I'm not ending. Right. That's, I mean, that's the thing is that if, if you, if you, if you zoom out a little bit, a lot of people, for a lot of people, American history has been a mass shared trauma event already. So it's not like you can expect them to slow down just because there's another one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> well, there's the role. What are you saying about out. optimism, Andrew? Well, I was, but it's, you know, I think we have to recognize the reality too. We so do. we do. Ups yeah. and downs. Ups yeah, and downs. Exactly. Ups and downs. You caught us on a good day because I didn't get any upsetting emails and Bash took two solid naps. Oh, so. oh good. Oh, Providence. Yeah. yeah. Well, we My thank state you. Of mind is like, I'm okay. Yeah. Well, I was just and... saying. So no, go I, I, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Catherine. I was just saying, you know, it was almost exactly a year ago that the university closed. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it's exact. I, I was living in New Orleans. Um, right. Katrina, you know, and I was teaching and I, I was telling my students, I was like, I don't know if this hurricane's coming here or not, but maybe we're not going to have school on Monday. So if we don't, you know, just w- watch for an email. <laughs> and I never saw them again. <laughs> and it was wow. exactly the same, I, that same thing. It was like that Wednesday, I was like, I think we might be closing. You know, it could yeah. be any day now. Like so the, just watch, oh, wow. watch our email. Yeah. Oh, we're recording this on. I never saw it. I was like, God, that's happened to me twice now. (laughs) Yeah, we're recording this on March fifth for everyone who's. um, Yeah, Yeah, and and I think our last in person was the sixteenth. Was it that late? No, that sounds about right. Ours was pretty. Our last in person was my last in person. In person was the eleventh. Yeah, Yeah. I think so. And mine was Stony Brook was around that time too. Yeah. Um, it would have been a week. Yeah, a week after the fifth well actually yeah yeah i think it was actually the 13th or the 14th something like that yeah yeah Mm -hmm. i went south for my cousin's bat mitzvah in like late february of last year what my my mom and i looked at each other like a couple months later and we're like were we stupid we were stupid (laughs) weren't we yeah can't take can't take that back yeah i mean we had a conference on campus at kennesaw um that Friday before the, the same day that they announced that the campus was going online as of the following Monday, but the conference was beforehand. And then the UGA system um, decided at like 5 PM on that Friday. I mean, it was literally that late. And I remember like somebody shaking my hand at this conference and I was like, yeah. should we be doing that? Gotta watch that. Yeah. Yeah. This whole, this whole thing reminds me of, we'll probably, we probably won't include this. This yeah. whole thing reminds me of a time that I went to a Shabbat dinner uh, at somebody's house, and there was a, like a relative, um, the daughter of the of the person I who, whose table I was at, brought her son, and her son had like an active inf- 
infection, like a visible infection on his body. Oh, and I was just sitting there. Exactly, exactly. I literally have never washed my hands so many times in a single <laughs> evening. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I remember when <laughs> I keep and this getting, has just been a year of that. Yeah, but I keep getting my Facebook picture memories and I was at NEMLA in Boston this week, last year. Aww. Yeah. Aww. But like, I remember walking around Salem and I said, Andrew, this is going to be the last time you're ever going to have this kind of freedom of mobility. So enjoy it. (laughs) I knew, but I knew this was going to get very bad because they had been honest about it. The scientists. And I even told the undergrad students when I came back from Boston, I'm like, I brought my paper towels and sanitizer and they're like, do you need to do all that? And I was like, yes. And uh, by, the, by the way, I know where you learn to store up memories for a hard winter. Yeah. That's one of the central pieces of the philosophy of Andre Asiman. Mm. Mm. Um, he, uh, it's true. Like, the, the very first thing I read in, uh, in college, uh, what is that, 16 years ago, uh, was a, an essay by Arbitrage by Asiman called Arbitrage about, um, about the poem Tintern Abbey, uh, mm-hmm. getting, back, getting back to the Regency period. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he says that Wordsworth is the one who figures out mm-hmm. that when, when you take pleasure in something, you're not only taking pleasure in what you're experiencing, but, you're, but you're, a part of you is resonating, taking pleasure in a future reflection on your current circumstances. Mm-hmm. And that's like that, essay becomes the beating heart of the second half of mm. uh of what's it called call me by your name yeah okay mm. yeah okay. but i just remember being in salem i said like this history about scapegoating with faux witches yeah um oh you don't think I, they were real witches yeah <laughs> no yeah. Oh, wait, spoiler <laughs> alert. Um, they were real, they wouldn't have gotten burnt. Let's just yes, put it that they way. They were real. Yeah. <laughs> but like, okay, I just, they, were, they were mediocre. They were I just thought about, like, how is this pandemic, well, whatever. how is this pandemic going to create scapegoats of people? Well, it already has, right? Well, I was thinking that at the time. Oh, but you were thinking this a year ago. I was thinking that yeah. a year ago, like, how is this going to affect sexuality and race and social class? Yeah. And well, I'm just waiting for some religious kook to say that it's all the fault of the LGBTQ community. <laughs> oh, I'm sure they've already said that. Oh, oh wait. They, yeah, they've... Yes, yes. An Orthodox rabbi said that the vaccine was going to cause people to be gay. Oh, okay. good. We could do some more people. Don't worry. Check. I don't think he's my rabbi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, no. the governor, the governor well, of Texas, said it was, uh, you know, Mexican well, immigrants that it. brought it to Texas. God, what oh, yeah. Yeah, but it's up in a rainbow. Like my students said, I'm sure you were very honest with your undergrad students because my undergrad students, they, I remember them telling me I was the only instructor saying that we're going to not be on campus anymore and trying to prepare for how to do virtual teaching. And all the others were like, I think a couple of my students said the same thing. Yeah, they were like, like, no one else has talked about this. I'm like, yeah, they were like, the faculty are just like, well, we're going to still be in person. So, Good luck. No. What the what the hell do they know? Yeah. If no, it's I a told, snowstorm, I, I, I get like, it. I was like, I don't, I don't think I'm. We're, you know, I think we're going to be at home for at least a couple weeks. Yeah. So. Yeah, it was very. Even at the time, I could hear the echo 
of myself 15 years before. <laughs> that is that is, by the way, one of the things I love about the book The Stand is mm -hmm. is the the incremental downward adjustment of everybody's expectation. Um, so yeah, so welcome to another episode of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We are so glad to have you with us. Um, please join us on Facebook. Uh, we have a room called the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Join us on Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. Um, you can send us messages through the podcast. Uh, please dive into Ula and Catherine's uh, contributions to the bibliography. Mm -hmm. You will never need for something something else to read. The list is going to be well, well. We'll do our best to include everything. It will not be easy. Stay safe and healthy, everyone, and we will yes. see you virtually again. So we're going to put a bookmark in this episode. Thank you so much for joining the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We want to remind you that you can email us for any questions you have, content you want to be posted as a writer on our website, our email is ivorytowerboilerroom at gmail.com. Please follow us on Twitter at, at ivoryboilerroom. Join our Facebook page at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, where you'll just be prompted to answer a few questions just so we know that you're not a bot. Um, also, we're really excited to announce that we now have a donate and support button on our homepage of our website. So please do feel free to support our community. We really appreciate any amount of donation. If it's a cup of coffee for $5, or if you want to be a monthly member, we're also going to eventually be offering different contests for our members who donate and also invite you to events like future live happy hours on Zoom. Even you might be able to attend one of our recordings. So all of that is to come, but we have launched the donation option. And we really are appreciative and supportive of all of you out there in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room community. Until next time, stay safe and healthy. And here is... Our theme song, Blackberry Blossom, performed by Michael O'Brien and Emily O'Brien. Thank you.
Thank <laughs> you.